Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. Uh, As we continue to have our eyes towards Christ, let's also um, open up our Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. Uh, You'll find that on page 1,881 in the Bibles in front there. And we're continuing in our series, uh, Undivided. Uh, This is a series that we've been in for a few weeks now, and one that is looking at how we are to be people who are not divided in our thought and our action, but we are meant to act in wholeness, in unity, in harmony. And James is continually calling people towards that throughout his letter. Now, just to remind us where we were um, two weeks ago in our series, we, we um, kind of finished with focusing in on verse 27 of chapter 1. Uh, that sets up the rest of the letter. So James talks about true faith, and true faith Um, Real faith is that which looks after the orphan and the widow and that's unpolluted uh, by the world. And now we're going to see in chapter 2 how James is unpacking that. Uh, The chapter 2 can kind of be uh, split into two distinct units. You can see that in kind of the paragraph headings um, in the passage there. Uh, Verses 1 through 13 form one unit, 4 through 26 the other, Uh, but they're kind of both connected in their relationship to chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, James is unpacking what does it mean to look after the orphan and the widow? What does it mean to be attentive to the haves and the have-nots in our society? Uh, With that reminder, uh, let's turn to God's Word together, starting in James chapter 2. Um, We're going to be reading uh, the whole chapter, uh, but focusing more specifically on verses 18 and 19, uh, so we have a specific direction there as well. My brothers and sisters, believers in in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor person in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the one who is poor, you stand over there or sit at the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. 
speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no deeds? Can such faith save them? And suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily food, if one of them says, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac at the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that people are justified by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. The word of the Lord. Martin Luther, the guy that I have pictured behind me, is one of the most important figures of the Protestant Reformation. He didn't really like the Epistle of James. If you read the fall newsletter, you, you have a bit of a head start. I kind of have some reasons why. But I wanted to bring it up today because the passage that we just read contains some of the reasons why Martin Luther had some of his issues there. So one of the things that Martin Luther was most famous for teaching about is this doctrine of being saved by grace through faith alone. He lived in a time where there was just a lot of anxiety around God's judgment. And the church of that day saw that anxiety that people were living under and they wanted to give very tangible, very tactile ways of being assured of salvation. Uh, this came in forms of confession, uh, different prayers that they could do. Um, it came in um, giving money or finances. They could, if, if they gave enough, they could feel that sense of assurance. Their anxiety could be stilled. But, but Martin Luther, being um, someone that just really had this anxiety still deep within him, he found that there was no amount of works, no amount of charity, no amount of confession that he could do to actually feel okay before God. Now, while he was reading Paul's epistles, he came across um, passages like Ephesians 2, verse 8, where it says, 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, as you can imagine, someone that's feeling this anxiety, there's nothing, there's no amount of things I can do to feel secure in salvation. There's no way I can earn this, how much peace this would give. Recognizing it is by grace, it is through faith, through what Jesus has already accomplished. Now, he spent much of his life pushing back against this notion that we have to do the right things in order to earn salvation. He dedicated years uh, putting his life at risk, encouraging people to see that their salvation comes from Jesus because of what he has already done. And this is a gospel truth that people needed to hear in the 1500s. They were feeling this anxiety. They were living under this crippling fear of God's judgment, and they needed this assurance that this was fully based off of what God has done. If you want more examples outside of Martin Luther, we could look in our own tradition. Uh, We can see the Heidelberg Catechism also has signs of that anxiety during that time. It was also written in the 1500s. And particularly the first two sections, uh, question and answer, one through 86, you'll find many examples of that assurance that we are saved fully through what God has done. We enter into salvation because of God's grace. James chapter 2, then, you can kind of see why he had some issue with this, reading, but some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. seems to have a movement towards action in the way that he was trying to push back against. Or if you continue in verse 24, perhaps a stronger wording, you see that people are justified by what they do and not by faith alone. You can see probably why um, people like Martin Luther had a bit of an issue with this passage. It's introducing the necessity of works alongside faith. Now, Martin Luther took this strong enough to say that, well, maybe James shouldn't actually be in the Bible. Uh, Maybe there's just so much other better uh, books that we could turn to. Um, if you want to know what we need for salvation, don't turn to James. You can, you can turn to 1 Peter. You can read the epistles of Paul. Read Romans, Galatians, Ephesians. This is where the content, the weighty stuff, the real things we need for God's salvation. James, by contrast, he calls the epistle of straw. It's kind of a famous insult he gives. And he calls it the epistle of straw because it's just, it's, it seems like filler to him. It doesn't have any of that substance that he longs for. Now, the problem that Luther's reading has is that it's it's reading kind of specifically from one angle of Paul, and he tries to see how, seeing through that particular lens of Paul, that there's a conflict there. And this kind of distorts both Paul's teachings and James' teachings. And, and I say that not to kind of belittle Martin Luther, but to say that we also share a lens when we come to Scripture. We have kind of a, a similar sort of angle when we come before God's Word. Kind of everyone since then, 
um, everyone in the part of the Protestant Reformation comes to this passage and often we bristle. We kind of, we don't, we shift in our seats. We don't really know what to do with this. While we might not have that same context of the 1500s where we are kind of having this anxiety around God's judgment, um, we still have that need for action, the need to do things in order to kind of prop up our identities. And this kind of changes how we look at passages like James here. Now, at the outset, I just want to make sure I bring this up because I want to set the record straight that James isn't in competition with Paul here. That this isn't a thing where they are in conflict about. James isn't trying to correct Paul or anything like that. By all indications that I've read, uh, Paul is writing this well before, or James is writing this well before Paul writes any of his remarks. The main problem comes in our lens, the way that we read it, and particularly um, how these two different people are using these words in very different contexts to say different things. So I just want to take a quick look at how, for instance, they use the word works. This is Paul here. Now, when Paul talks about works, He's talking about things that people do to try to earn their salvation. Um, he's talking about like circumcision and tithing and different acts that people do to get to enter into salvation. His, his main context is how do we get in to being God's people? And he's talking about this in context of Jews and Gentiles. How, how do we stand kind of at that same footing? And then, as we saw with Luther, he's asking that same question. So he's going to focus in on that same point. How do we enter into salvation? He looks at words like what Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not by works that no one can boast. And this, this phrasing should also be pretty powerful for our own time, because our culture is also one that looks towards works for our security. It's less, again, from that fear of judgment and more for grasping towards identity. Uh, we turn towards works to kind of feel good about ourselves, to feel accomplished, to have an identity that we are okay with. But we know that all of our striving, all the things that we do, we can do more and more and more, but that will never get us to that place of peace that we long for. It won't give us a step closer to that salvation that we need. We, too, are people that need to hear these words from Paul. It is by grace, through faith, that we are saved. We enter into salvation through what God has done. God is the one who comes to us in our brokenness. And Paul wants to make sure that we are aware of that, and we want to make sure as we're reading this passage that that is the context that we come into faith. But that isn't the main thing that James is talking about here. So here's James preaching, using his arms. And he is having this main context that he wants to look at how we are changed afterwards. After our salvation, what does that lead into? Works in his context are actions of mercy that show this growing in imitation of God. 
It's, it's what we ought to be doing as people of new creation. And notice how that's going to read a little bit differently. When Paul uses words like works, he's employing it to make a statement of the types of things that people do to earn salvation, and we want to avoid those works. We want to avoid the sense that we are trying to earn something. Yet when James uses works, he is talking about it in a positive sense. He's talking about works as this way that we live into what we were created for. And while it might appear on the surface then that they're in disagreement because they're using these words very differently, at a closer look, they are in alignment. And I think this can actually be best demonstrated by looking at Paul, um, looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Because right after he says this statement, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, it's not by works, the very next line is, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That, that, that our faith actually leads us into doing good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Here we have um, Paul in agreement with what James has to say. And if, if we follow James, looking at uh, James chapter 1, verse 18, we'll say they, they kind of use that same category. In 1, verse 18, he looks at the church, this new community. He describes them as the first fruits of new creation. They are this new creation created in Jesus, be doing these new works in different ways. So much more can be said on words like faith and works and justification as it gets used in verse 24. Uh, we can save that for another time. Uh, but we just want to recognize that these are complementing each other. These aren't people in conflict here. And one of the ways I want to look at this a little bit more deeply is by looking at James through a different lens, and that's looking at it through Jesus' teachings, because that's where we started. And I think that's a more helpful place to see where is their agreement. How does James sound like Jesus, particularly Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount? So here we have Matthew chapter 7. We'll just read two of these paragraphs here. In the first one, Jesus teaches Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by your fruit, you will recognize them. Uh, Jesus' first statement here is about false teachers, and he, and he gives this image of fruit. Good teachers produce what is life-giving and good. And twice, Jesus says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus indicates here that the, the true followers are recognized in what they produce. James is making the, the same statement when he says, I will show you my faith with my deeds. James is saying, look at the fruit. Look, look what this is producing. 
Uh, Jesus goes on to say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Again, James's teaching matches this. Uh, the, the whole setting of verses 14 through 26 are based off of this question of what type of faith saves. Um, in verse 20, there's a, a particularly uh, powerful way that James puts this. Uh, in, in the NIV, he, he calls the person that claims to have faith but does not live into this. Uh, the NIV translates it as fool. Um, but the, the Greek, kind of like more literally, says, you, you hollow person. Uh, I like that image of hollowness. The person without works is hollowed or emptied. And then James goes on to do a little play on words there that's really hard to replicate in English. But essentially it says that faith without works is workless. Uh, a faith that lacks work doesn't work. And throughout the passage, James retains that sharpness of Jesus' teachings. That we need to be a people that do God's will. That faith is incomplete. It's not true faith if there's no affirmation in how we live. Now, both James and Jesus say something that I think I just want to zero in a little bit more on. That, that right doctrine... Right theology alone, like right thinking, isn't what saves. James states these words, um, you believe that the Lord is one. Good. Um, when he says that, he's, he's quoting this essential part of Jewish theology from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Love, Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. He, he's, he's quoting that in part, saying, you affirm something that is central to our faith, and he's using that to say, you, you have the right doctrine here. But correct teaching doesn't necessarily make you a friend of God. You need to respond in the world with acts of mercy. And, and notice, too, that James, in that context, makes a statement about Demons believing and then shuddering. Not only do they have the right teaching, but they also have a response. It's kind of contrasting. The person that says they believe and has no response at all, the demons at least respond, but they quake in terror. It's not the type of response that draws towards life. They're quaking because they know that their divided living, the division in acting against God, draws towards judgment. But the person of faith, in contrast to that, doesn't need to shudder. And the reason why we've already covered that, we've already looked at it through James, is because entrance into salvation is not based on anything that we have done. It's based on what Jesus has done. The person of faith is free to see how God is renewing them making them whole, how God is the one that's weaving them back together in the midst of their brokenness. There are to be people who then, encountering God, respond with acts of mercy and of justice. James's examples throughout chapter 2, again, are outflows of what we see, of what true religion looks like, this care for the widow, for the orphan, 
its attentiveness for the haves and the have-nots of society. And looking back to our theme, throughout our series, we've been tracing um, this whole idea in James that we are to be undivided, and we started off with this image where, where thought and action, that, that true faith has these things together, yet the, the double-minded person is something that we see, where sometimes our, our thought and our action aren't acting in unity, and it comes to the point here where it's only thought and no action anymore. That part is gone, and James is saying, well, that's not faith. It's not a unity anymore. It's not a living faith. It has something that's completely absent from it. We are to be a people in our faith that grow in the imitation and likeness of God, God whose action is in complete unity with his character. Now, this sort of teaching, I'll admit, uh, can feel quite demanding that all of a sudden, okay, we have to be living perfectly. And I think it's really helpful to see where James takes this. He, he goes in to look at um, two different examples, one of Abraham and another of Rahab, uh, two people that could not be possibly more different from each other in relation to the people of God. Uh, with Abraham, you have someone of privilege. He is the very foundation of belonging. He is the one who has um, ownership. He's the one who have, has different benefits in his society. In contrast, naming Rahab, uh, someone that doesn't have that much time in Scripture, and someone who doesn't even belong to the people of Israel in the proper sense. She has little to no status in her time. She too is characterized, though, by her faith in accordance to the fear of the Lord. She is considered one who brings her faith into unity, into maturity, in the actions of mercy towards the Israelites that she protects. Now, James chooses these examples, two people as far apart from each other as possible, to say that everyone in between is included in this. Wherever you think you are in that spectrum, whether you're closer to Abraham or closer to Rahab, none of us are excluded from being able to, to live this out. The expression for this faith is not relegated to people that have their lives all together. It includes the have-nots of society. Rahab is not without her moral quandaries, yet James turns to her as an example of faith, even in the midst of the brokenness and how she responds to undivided living, where her faith and fear of the Lord are expressed in unity. So, What's the takeaway here? How, how do we respond to this passage? I think one of it is just to be encouraged, to, to be nudged towards thinking of how you live these things out. Whether you feel like you're more like Abraham or you're more like Rahab, to allow this to nudge you towards action in some way. Uh, in, in my own life, as I kind of opened with in the, the opening of the series, I found James to be quite disruptive, and particularly this passage was one 
that kind of echoing through my mind sent me off into different places. It's taken me to Mexico and Guinea-Bissau and Thailand in different service capacities. It's also brought me serving locally, uh, volunteering at uh, places like the Cyrus Center. And, and in doing so, it's prompted, I think, helpful movement. It, it has helped me move towards wholeness, where, where my actions are at least more in sync with what I believe. But uh, there's, there's a shadow side to that as well. I, I'm also part of a culture that prizes busyness and doing things, where, where being busy is, is a mark of pride because it shows that we're valued. I, I'm valued because my time is valuable. I can have the temptation to just see deeds, these things that I've done, in the capital letters, bold letters, the things that kind of take over. And this passage, basically, if I'm not careful, can be the opposite of what James intends. Rather than building towards a faith that leads towards deeds, it can just separate deeds from faith, that they are now the things that count. It can kind of tear faith and deeds apart into two. The invitation is to see how thought and action are not separate pieces, but vital to the fabric of faith itself. They are meant to be woven together. And then that image of weaving things together is one that I came across uh, in kind of separate study, and I thought it was too much of a overlap to not mention. In uh, reading Work and Worship, this quote um, came up. It said, an integrated life is not an intellectual achievement. So having faith and work coming together, this isn't just an achievement of our minds. It's not coming through thinking about it hard enough. It's not this all of a sudden eureka moment of theological discovery. It's more like a fabric that has been torn into pieces. And that fabric of faith and work needs to be slowly and intentionally woven back together over a lifetime of prayer and worship. There's that image of weaving, taking two things and making them whole. Uh, this not only captures a little bit of that theme, what it means to be undivided, uh, but it also gives some unintentional commentary a little bit on the visual that we had uh, set up for the series. Uh, so as staff was planning into what we were going to do for our series in James, they came up with the idea to have two different strands, kind of two different colors being woven together into one. Uh, perhaps what you don't see if you're not close enough, all those little nails that Elisa put into uh, and wrapped those around. There's like, there's a hot glue gun that we use to glue those in. It took a, it took a lot of time as well. Um, but these, these were done not just because we thought it would look nice, uh, but because this gives a visual that we are meant to consider and contemplate throughout our series. How might we be intentional in weaving ourselves together into this integrated whole. Not two separate parts, but, but integrated, undivided. Uh, in the quote, I think it gives some good direction for that. How we do this is not by looking into ourselves, into our own strength, but it directs us towards God. It directs us towards prayer and worship. 
We start as saved people, standing in gratitude before God, asking for eyes to see where God may be guiding us. Action, our deeds, are to be embedded in faith. They stem from this faith into wherever we go. So having entered into salvation through God's grace, we are invited to continually place ourselves before him as he guides us into this living faith. Let's come before him in prayer. Dear Lord, weave us together and make us whole. As we spend time before your word, as we look to you in prayer, as we worship, may we be shaped and formed. As we spend a lifetime in worship of you, may these times weave us together in such a way that we can grow in maturity and in our Christian walk, that we may grow in hope together through Jesus, grow as people who are not divided but united between what we believe and how we live it out. Give us the grace to see how we might begin this. In a world of haves and have-nots, may we resist favoritism. May we be like Rahab and Abraham, who regardless of their social status, regardless of how well they seem to fit within the religious community, could respond in faithfulness to you. Draw us to a faith that is living. In the times where we show ourselves to be divided, where it appears that our faith is dead, we pray forgiveness Forgive us and through your work of your spirit, convict us and prompt us towards life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.